Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza. And I'm Abdul Latif. Today, we're recording from Harvard University's Semitic Museum, and we're here with our guest, Professor Khaled Arroyhib. Khaled Arroyhib is the James Richard Jewett Professor of Arabic and Islamic Intellectual History in Harvard's Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Today, he'll be talking about his recent book, Islamic Intellectual History in the 17th Century, Scholarly Currents in the Ottoman Empire and the Maghrib. This book was published in 2015 with Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Professor. Thank you. Happy to be here. Today, we're going to going to attempt a, a bit of a challenge for one single session of our interviews. We're going to try to cover the entire book, which is vast indeed. So please forgive us, our listeners, if we end up glossing over things. You'll just have to check out the book yourselves. The book is divided into three parts. All three sections are focusing in on scholarly migrations and the impact that these movements had on intellectual history. So it's really connecting up the very rich field of social political history that's already more well-trodden for the Ottoman Empire with a less well-trodden intellectual history. The first section deals with the influx of scholars into the Ottoman Empire, mostly from Kurdish and Azeri areas. The second focuses on the movement eastward of scholars from the Maghrib, and some of them settled in Egypt and in the Hejaz subsequently. And finally, the third section looks at the spread of Sufi orders from India, from Azerbaijan, into largely Arabic-speaking regions and the effect that this had. We're roughly going to follow the, um, the structure of the book, and we'll attempt to give listeners at least a taste of each section. Before we get into the material, could you tell us why you chose to focus on the 17th century? Well, the boring answer is that it's a century I know well. Uh, the more interesting answer, maybe, is that um, it's, a, it's a century that has been denigrated from the perspective of a number of distinct decline narratives. Uh, so, for example, in Ottoman studies, traditionally, 17th century has been seen as the beginning of the long decline of the Ottoman Empire after its heyday in the 15th and 16th century. In the Arabic literature, of course, the 17th century is part of a long period of decline from the sacking of Baghdad in 1258 to the so-called Nahda, the Renaissance of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And from the perspective of people who study so-called revivalist and reformist movements in the 18th and 19th centuries in the Islamic world, the 17th century is, is a backdrop to that. It's, it's, a, it's a century that's often thought to have been dominated by unthinking imitation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, popular syncretic practices, antinomian Sufism, and that is then presented as the kind of situation that these so-called reformists and modernists and revivalists want to rectify. So from all these angles, the 17th century has tended to be seen as almost as a dark age. Let's turn to the first section, which focuses on the migration of these Kurdish and Azeri scholars into the Ottoman Empire. Some of them were fleeing from Shah Abbas, and they report studying the books of the Persians and certain rational sciences with them. What does that mean, the books of the Persians, and um, you know, what sort of consequences on the scholarly environment did this migration have in the Ottoman Empire? So the books of the Persians... Uh, as far as I could determine, is a reference to books 
on the rational sciences, such as logic, dialectics, rational theology, philosophy, by Persian scholars active in the second half of the 15th century and in the early decades of the 16th century. Scholars such as uh, Jalaluddin Dawani, uh, some of his students. Um, Dawani is a, he was active in Shiraz in the second half of the 15th century. He's a very important logician, theologian, philosopher. And there's also the uh, grammarian and rhetorician Isamuddin Isfaraini who was active in Herat and later in Bukhara in the early decades of the 16th century. Uh, these are some of the, the the scholars who, as far as I could determine, they might have been well known before, but they really start to be regularly studied, commented mm. upon, and glossed in the 17th century. Could you tell us a little more about what that means to gloss a book? To gloss a book is to write uh, marginal comments. In Arab, the Arabic term is hashia, literally a marginal comment. Since mm -hmm. the Timurid age, the 14th century, this this becomes an acknowledged literary form for scholarly writing. You pick a well-known text, often a work that is studied in madrasas, and you comment on various passages. Either you explicate them, or if you're a more ambitious scholar, you raise anticipate objections raise objections yourself it has often been uh, dismissed as nothing but scholastic pedantry but the recent trend in scholarship is actually to look at these and to recognize that of course they could sometimes be the vehicle of pedantry but they could also as often as not be the vehicle for critical uh, reflection on received teachings mm. so the choice of these um, kurdish and azari scholars the books of dawani what is significant about the choice to gloss these texts? What does it really show us? Usually when a text is in intensely glossed, it means that it's being studied intensively. And each, almost every sentence of their handbooks and their works are being discussed, expounded, sometimes critically debated. Mm -hmm. These works rhetorically affirm the value of what I translate as verification, the Arabic term is tahqiq, and verification is precisely the ideal that you do not simply accept what your teachers tell you, what previous scholars have said, but you critically reflect. You don't necessarily need to dismiss, but you critically reflect on these teachings by anticipating objections, trying to respond to these objections, thinking in which ways one might criticize or defend these views. And you find this term tahqiq being deployed by these logicians and other people writing in the rational sciences at this time in the 17th century? Very much so. It's not a new ideal. Uh, so if one looks, for example, at the works of Dewani in the 15th century, the prefaces to these works very much are um, using this rhetoric. Uh, what I'm doing is not just repeating what others have said. This is insufficient. I'm, I'm, I'm a verifier. So it's not a new ideal, but um, our source from the 17th century tend to link the study of these texts in the rational sciences in this critical manner with the ideal of tahqiq, verification. So one Damascene scholar writing towards the end of the 17th century is looking back and to the arrival of a Kurdish scholar in Damascus in the early decades of the 17th century and he, he writes that his teachers have told him 
it is this scholar, this Kurdish scholar who settles in Damascus in the early decades of the 17th century, who, quote, opened the gate of verification in Damascus. So there is a connection, Mm -hmm. at least a rhetorical one, between the spread of the study of the works of these scholars with later glosses and the ideal of verification. Fascinating. This seems to be in really direct conflict with the kind of decline narratives that you started the interview out with that your book really seeks to uh, revise. Did these books, did they spread beyond the Ottoman Empire at all? Many of these texts were also known, say, in the the Indian subcontinent, in Central Asia. They don't seem to have spread as fast, say, in the Maghreb, which has its own intellectual traditions that we will maybe get to. Um, But certainly in the so-called Turco-Persianate world, the study of these texts was uh, very widespread. So in the Indian uh, Dersi Nizami curriculum of the early 18th century, which mm-hmm. lasts well into the modern period, these texts also play a very prominent role. I think you also mentioned the uh, Lucknow Institution Firangi Mahil in your book, which was really striking to me. So maybe we could uh, do a demonstration of uh, one of the examples of the sort of art of logic and demonstration that you give in this book, and um, this discipline is called Adab al-Bath. It's just one of maybe many disciplines that existed within, or many genres, sorry, that existed within um, logic at the time, but maybe just so that our listeners can get a sense of what some of the very introductory material of this this vast discipline might look like. So let's say I'm trying to prove that 16-year-olds can vote. How would, I don't know, Tash Koprozadeh question this? Adab al-Bath is a, is, a, is a discipline that really emerges in the 13th, early 14th centuries, and it becomes an established scholarly discipline in the Turco-Persianate world after that. I argue that in the 17th century, there is a great increase in interest in this discipline and an increased output. To give you a sense of what this discipline is about, so you you ask about uh, extending the vote to 16-year-olds. So according to the rules of this discipline, there are three ways, acknowledged ways, in which you can respond to that. Now, since you make a claim, I think that voting should be extended to 16 years old it is incumbent upon you as claimant to give a proof for that so the 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 burden of proof so to speak is on the claimant Mm -hmm. there was a recent article in the economist where which which says that 16 year olds should vote because they are particularly invested in the future and if you give 16 year olds the vote they're more likely to be regular voters in the future and maybe raise the levels of voting participation one recognized way of objecting is to say i don't accept a premise of your argument say i don't accept that giving 16 year olds the vote is going to raise voting participation i don't accept that premise why do you say that and then it would be it would be incumbent upon you to cite the studies that show that uh, so that is called in Arabic munaqada, um, which is to reject the premise of the claimant. And another way of saying that, uh, another way of objecting is to object to the proof, typically by saying the proof is either too weak or too strong. So in the case, if you say 16-year-olds should get the vote because as young people they are particularly invested in the future, one could say, well, by the same argument, 12-year-olds should should mm. vote. That argument is too strong. That is called not. <laughs> 
And uh, a third way of arguing is to say, okay, you do have an argument here, but I have an equally compelling argument for the opposite case. For example, one might cite the some psychological studies that suggest that teenagers, the part of their mind or brain that is involved in calculating risks and planning is weakly still not fully developed. One reason that they seem to be involved in more traffic accidents, for example. So where this would be Muharada, where I just construct a different argument for the opposing uh, conclusion. So I'm not really objecting to a premise. I'm not objecting to the way you argued. I'm just saying, okay, you have an argument there, but here's an equally compelling case for the opposite conclusion. Uh, so these are the three main um, main strategies outlined in these handbooks. It is a very argumentative culture, uh, unlike what many modern scholars and even many modern people who are not scholars, madrasa culture in this period is intensely argumentative. Um, premises, arguments are scrutinized, and uh, this is how a lot of the works that are being studied in madrasa is also written. Mm, sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah. well, it took many, many years to, tra to train an Ottoman scholar or a Safavid scholar or a Mughal scholar. So the, the kinds of demonstrations that we just had, they seem to be potentially part of either an oral or written disputational you know, culture of learning, but were there any other effects on Adab al-Bahth? Were they read in any other contexts? Well, I argue in the third chapter of my book that the increased interest in the discipline of Adab al-Bahth, scrutinizing arguments, uh, seems to have inspired the first uh, critical reflections that we have in the Islamic tradition on the art of reading. We start getting, in the 16th century, um, uh, there's a small treatise being written by uh, an obscure Shiraz scholar, scholar from Shiraz in Persia, very short on the principles of reading, which is basically applying the principles of Adab al-Bahth to reading. So you're reading, try to figure out, is this a premise, is this an argument, what, what, how can you object? Uh, in the 17th century, in the late 17th century, an Ottoman scholar writes the first, uh, his name is Munajim Bashi, um, he writes the first, apparently the first extended treatment of how to read in the Islamic tradition. Hmm. Uh, so that seems to be, I mean, there's no simple explanation here. It's not all due to Adab al-Bath, but Adab al-Bath is one factor that's feeding into this interest. Another, I would say, is the closely related ideal of verification. Mm -hmm. If you're a verifier, you read in this way. You look at premises, you try to get a sense of the argument, you try to think of possible objections uh, and how they might be answered. So I guess let's Move into the second part of your book where you talk about Maghribi scholars, some famous, some not as famous, moving eastward into the Ottoman Empire because of the fall of the Saudian dynasty in 1603, the institutionalization of Hajj. Who were some of these scholars and why did they decide to settle in Egypt in the Hejaz? Many of these scholars are not particularly well-known. Um, one person who is relatively well-known is Ahmad al-Makkari, who writes a famous literary history of Al-Andalus that becomes very popular. He's, uh, he was also a theologian uh, and wrote theological works um, that has not been investigated as much. Um, 
Egypt in the 17th, uh, early 18th century is enjoying a period of relative economic prosperity as shown by André Raymond in a number of studies, uh, particularly the coffee industry seems to have been a, a very important factor. Much of the coffee came from the Yemen, but it was exported to the rest of the world mm. via Egypt. Mm -hmm. Indian Ocean trade. <laughs> yes. So Egypt uh, becomes, uh, starts, I mean, Egypt had, of course, been an important center. It seems to have suffered, though, from a series of plagues in the 14th, 15th centuries. Uh, by the 17th century, there are signs of recovery. So this would be a natural magnet for Maghrebi scholars who anyway would pass through Egypt on their way to the Hajj, mm -hmm. especially when the Maghreb itself seems to have been going through a period of uh, turmoil with with the uh, with the end of the Saudian dynasty. And it took maybe half a century before political order was restored in Morocco. The Hajj, of course, is an old institution, but there is evidence that in the Ottoman Empire, when this entire region becomes politically unified, that the Hajj gains even more importance and it becomes also important as a place where scholars from various parts of the Islamic world would actually meet. Mm. Uh, there would be very few opportunities otherwise for, say, a scholar from India and a scholar from Morocco to meet mm -hmm. in this age. Mm -hmm. These Maghrebi scholars, as they're traveling eastward, are they bringing something that was a specific specialization in the Maghrib or a scholarly tradition in the Maghrib that didn't exist in the East to Egypt and to the Hejaz? Uh, yes. Um, so I try to argue that particularly the, the writings on theology, kalam, and log logic, mantuk, the, the writings of the 15th century North African scholar Sanusi, become widely studied in the course of the 17th century as an effect of this uh, west, um, eastward spread of uh, North African scholars into Egypt, the Hejaz, and, and sometimes also Syria. Um, this, this is an indigenous tradition of logic and uh, kalam that existed in North Africa. It might not be radically different from what existed in the Middle East before that, but it did have some distinctive features, which I try to tease out. Mm -hmm. Could you give us some um, examples of those features? So uh, Sanusi uh, is an Ashari. Uh, he belongs to the Ashari school of theology. Now, many people in the Middle East, in Egypt, and Syria, and the Hejaz were also Asharis in this period. But he was distinctive in a number of ways, two of which I discuss in the book. One is that he believed that Ash'ari theology should be taught even beyond scholarly circles, that it was not enough for ordinary Muslim believers to accept the creed um, simply through imitation of elders and peers, but they needed to know at least enough rational theology to be acquainted with some of the proofs for, for these beliefs. Um, and that is a, a view that you find amongst very early Asharis in the, when the Ashari school emerged in the 10th, 11th century in Baghdad and Nishapur. But it is a controversial view and had been largely abandoned by Eastern Asharis um, from the time of Ghazali 
and the 11th century and onwards. Um, but uh, Sanusi, in this respect, has a very radical uh, view. And how do you go beyond the stage of imitation, taklid, in theology? It is by knowing the proofs which he tended to present in a logical format, i.e. In, in forms derived from books on logic, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which he was also very much interested in. This acceptance of creed, of aqidah, um, based on something other than, um, than logical proofs, perhaps the authority of the teacher, would that be similar to the taqlid uh, that these scholar, the way that these scholars are using the term taqlid? Taqlid can mean different things in different academic disciplines. Mm -hmm. uh, many of us are familiar with taqlid in law. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the what has often been discussed by modern Islamic reformist, modernist thinkers since the time of Muhammad Abdu. Right. where taqlid is to accept the authority of previous uh, jurists um, as opposed to ijtihad, which is to go to the sources, the Quran and the Hadith, and extract the rulings directly from that. Less well studied is the sense of taqlid, which I think was more present, more important in the 17th century, which is taqlid in for example, in Kalam, in Aqidah, in, in theology, where if you say you believe in God and you believe that the Prophet Muhammad is his prophet, mm -hmm. but you are completely floundered when someone asks you, well, what is, do you have any proof for the existence of God? Do you have any proof that the Prophet Muhammad is indeed a prophet? That was considered unsatisfactory on the grounds that such a person, if presented with such questions, their faith might be weakened. Um, the opposite of taqlid in this sense is not ishtihad. It is, again, tahqiq, verification. Mm. It is knowing the proofs for the Cree articles of faith mm -hmm. that makes you a muhaqqiq and no longer a muqallid. And the theologian Sanusi believed that a muqallid's is either a sinner or even maybe ultimately an unbeliever. Wow. Ultimately, why I say ultimately unbeliever is that such a person should be treated legally as a Muslim, just like, a, say, a hypocrite who says he believes but doesn't really believe. Mm -hmm. But on the day of judgment, if such a person has no arguments for what he believes or what she believes, he explicitly writes creeds for women as well. Wow such a person might not be saved. Uh, so, of course, this is a very radical thesis. Uh, we have, there's abundant evidence that even in North Africa, there were lots of scholars who were very uncomfortable with this radical stance. But uh, when uh, Muhammad Abdu in the late 19th century writes his Risalat al-Tawheed famously mm -hmm. and starts off by denigrating taqlid in theology, this is not new, as is often thought. This is very much in line with the creedal works of Sanusi that Muhammad Abdu would himself have studied as a student in the Azhar in, fascinating, uh, fascinating. in the 19th century. These books on creed for women, what was Sanusi really thinking that needed a, you know, a spe specification for you know, how creed is written differently for one gender versus another? 
Okay, uh, just to maybe clarify, uh, when he writes creeds, he says these are creeds for commoners, including women. And ah, okay. so it's not specifically just for women, but since um, there were few mm-hmm. women scholars, mm-hmm. the idea would be this is for generally for non-scholars. And he makes a point of saying this also includes women. Ah, so the same books that would have been studied by Olama are basically being recommended for... Um, At least for beginning students. For beginning are also students. Beginning, so his most advanced works, I don't think he had any idea that these would be read and mm. studied by non-scholars. But he did write relatively simple creeds. Now, writing relatively simple creeds is nothing new, but he inserts in that at least one argument for each article of faith even for non-scholars. In that respect, these creeds are distinctive. Absolutely. Um, Now, some modern scholars saw these relatively simple works by Sanusi and thought, oh, look, look at the decline, look how simplistic he is, look how dogmatic he is. They've not actually paid heed to the fact that he did also write longer, more involved works. It's just that he's writing these relatively accessible creeds because he has this very radical view about the insufficiency of taqlid when it comes to religious belief. Before we move on to the third section of the book, Professor Wehib, would you be willing to read to us perhaps a section of Sunusi's work? Um, okay, I, I I can read out from the early passages of two of his theological works um, in his uh, so-called Long Creed. Um, he wrote the following. The first duty incumbent before anything else on the person who reaches the age of maturity is to exercise his mind on what will lead him with certain demonstrations and clear proofs to knowledge of his Lord, and not to be satisfied with the lowly occupation of taqlid, for this does not avail him on the last day, according to many verifying scholars. And in in, in the introduction to his middle creed, he writes, We praise and thank him for countless bounties, the most precious of which is what he, may he be exalted, has bestowed of the bounty of faith and coming forth from the darkness and prison of Taqlid concerning the creed to the spacious light of correct reasoning that reveals the quintessence of certainty. So one can see here the very strong rhetorical stance against um, against Taqlid. And this is picked up by later Moroccan scholars. So in the 17th century, uh, Al-Hassan Yusi, one of the most prominent Moroccan scholars, int- introduces one of his works uh, on logic by saying, um, or by writing, O oh reader, there may, there may occur in our work things with which you are not familiar and that you will find nowhere else. Do not hurry to condemn this, whimsically heeding the call of the one who merely relays what others have said and stitches it together, and for whom the ultimate in knowledge and the aim of all effort is to say, so and so has said. No, by God, we seek refuge in God from blackening folios and stuffing choirs with what people have said and meant, following the well-trodden path of imitation, as the dull-witted do. There is no difference between an imitator being led and a pack animal being led. So know, O reader, that we have not included in this or other compositions anything besides what we believe to be correct, i.e. concepts and propositions that are evident or correctly argued for. So this is what he writes, and some modern scholars have 
misunderstood this, taken it out of context and see and you see a precursor to the call for ishtihad. Mm. But really ishtihad is a concept in Islamic law and this is not what Yusi is talking about. Yusi is talking about taqlid and the rational sciences, the opposite of which is not ishtihad, but it is verification, i.e. critical verification of received views. And so one of the claims you make in your book is about how this supposed Daglid in-law is com- almost completely unrelated to what's happening in the intellectual history of the area. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So I think that maybe as an effect of a lot of modernist reformist thinking in the modern period, Islamic law has become elevated in the minds of many people, including scholars, as the quintessential Islamic religious discipline. And um, because people like Muhammad Abdu and Muhammad Iqbal issued this clarion call for ishtihad and seemed to present ishtihad as the magic solution to all the woes of Islamic society, there was this assumption that the key to Islamic intellectual development was ishtihad and... um, But what I try to indicate is that really ishtihad is a concept that whose uh, whose primary application is in Islamic law. So it's not clear that ishtihad would have had any use for, say, a logician or a grammarian or a Sufi or a philosopher or an astronomer or a mathematician. Mm. Uh, Such a person isn't going to find answers by going straight to the Quran and the Hadith. Such a person, so ishtihad really makes much, not much sense in that in that uh, in, in that context. Mm-hmm. I maybe a little bit polemically say that. Okay, let's assume just for the sake of argument that the gate of ishtihad was in fact closed. I don't think it is, but let's say assume for the. Why should that lead to the lack of development in non-legal disciplines? My colleague, my departed and sorely missed colleague, uh, Shahab Ahmad, in his book, What is Islam, has precisely pointed out that we need to revise this assumption that Islamic law is really equivalent with Islamic religious thinking. Mm. And this uh, prioritizing of law to the exclusion of Sufism, theology, philosophy is something that we need to rethink. Speaking of this exclusion, the Sufi orders in the last part of your book entered from India and Azerbaijan into the Ottoman Empire, and they brought with them uh, new like uses of ideas like tahqiq, verification, and they also brought new ideas about wahdat al-wujud, this unity of existence, this Ibn Arabi concept into the Hijaz. What were some of the effects of these ideas that they brought, and who were these people, who were these orders bringing them? We have from... Anatolia, uh, the Khalwati order, which starts to become uh, very widespread, gains in popularity in the Arabic-speaking Levant in the 17th century. Prior to that, it did exist, but it, uh, ha- it was not as popular and it tended primarily to be popular with, say, Turkish-speaking inhabitants of Cairo, Damascus. From the 17th century, we find 
a, a lot of Arabic-speaking Khalwatis emerging. Yeah. Uh, from India, we get the Shatari order and also the Naqshbandi order. Mm -hmm. uh, also, some of these are coming from Central Asia, uh, the, the Naqshbandi order. Both Mujaddidi, i.e. followers of Ahmed Sirhindi, but also non-Mujaddidi uh, Naqshbandis. And the non-Mujaddidi uh, Naqshbandis and the Shattaris and the Khalwatis all seem to have had a much more accepting view of the idea of Wahdat al-Wujud, of ultimately traceable to Ibn Arabi, the Andalusian mystic from mm -hmm. the early 13th century, rather than the Sufi orders that have been prevalent in, say, Egypt and uh, the Levant prior to the 17th century, such as the Shadili order, order or the Qadri order. One effect is an increasingly open acceptance of the idea of Wahdat al-Wujud and citing um, not so much Ibn Arabi himself, but his Persianate commentators, such hmm. as Sadruddin Qunawi and the various later commentators on the Fusus al-Hikam of Ibn Arabi's Fusus al-Hikam, such as the famous 15th century Persian mystic uh, Jami. Before we move on, could you give us a, just a brief definition of what Wahdat al-Wujud may mean in this context? Briefly, Wahdat al-Wujud is the view that God is the only existent that existence is one and it is divine so that God is not simply one more thing that exists in the world alongside everything else that also exists but that really God is the only existent and everything else in our phenomenal world including our old selves are manifestations of this one divine reality it comes close to pantheism, but of course, defenders would want to say, no, we're not saying that tables and chairs and humans and animals are God. We're saying that they're not God, but they are manifestations of the one divine reality. Hmm. Most prominent Sufis who were active, say, in Syria and Egypt in the 15th, 16th centuries, seem to have revered Ibn Arabi as a saint, but they try to keep, keep an arm's length to the doctrine of Wahdat al-Wujud, mm -hmm. playing it down and avoiding a discussion of the later Persianate commentators on Ibn Arabi's most controversial work, which is his very short Fusus al-Hikam, The mm -hmm. Bezels of Wisdom. Mm -hmm. This changes in the 17th century, or so I, I try to show, and we have scholars in Medina or Damascus and later in Cairo who are openly accepting of the ideas ideas of Wahd al-Wujud and other controversial ideas uh, attributed to, to Ibn Arabi. Mm -hmm. uh, prominent among these would be Ibrahim Kurani in Medina and um, Abdelghani Nabulsi in Damascus, all active in the second half of the 17th century, and in the case of Nabulsi, also the early decades of the 18th. Now, the consequences of this are quite surprising. At least I was surprised by it. Often the school of Ibn Arabi has been accused of leading to antinomianism, syncretism. Uh, but in actual fact, what seems to have happened is that with the spread of this kind of mystical monism is a an attack on established Ash'ari and Maturidi theology and a reversion to 
ideas in theology that are actually quite reminiscent of the Hanbali school of law, which tends to be dismissing of, say, figurative interpretations of apparent anthropomorphisms in the Quran and Hadith. Mm-hmm. Could you give us an example of one such you know, sentence? So, for example, the, in, the, in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the Quran, the Arabic seems to suggest that the burning bush is God. And most commentators w- would try to deny that the Arabic, the one who is in the fire, is actually God. Because that is problematic, of course, theologically. But for the Ibn Arabi school, um, there's no problem in saying God has manifested himself in the fire. Mm-hmm. He manifests himself in other things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, the famous uh, Quranic uh, passages which suggests that God is seated on a throne, mm-hmm. for example, or that God has eyes and hands. Again, these tended to be interpreted figuratively in almost all schools of theology, but the Hanbali school of law was virulently opposed to these kinds of figurative reinterpretations and say we just need to accept the text as it is and surprisingly the Ibn Arabi school of mysticism tends to agree with the Hanbalis Uh, of course on the on a on a ground that maybe not all Hanbalis would be happy with but on the grounds that God manifests himself Mm -hmm. in the phenomenal world and these manifestations can be described as having eyes and ears and being seated on a throne or being in a fire even though God in himself is completely unlike anything that can be conceived or thought it's a fascinating convergence there and they actually go out of their way people like Ibrahim Qurani in the 17th century go out of their way to find and rehabilitate the writings of Ibn Taymiyyah the famous 14th century Hanbali religious thinker who is famously critical of Ash'ari the Ash'ari school of theology and there is a suggestion that it was actually people like Qurani who rediscover Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah had, of course, always been read within the Hanbali school of law, but he was he seems to have been a little-read scholar outside of the minority Hanbali school of law, but that um, with the efforts of, of people like uh, Qurani, that he starts the process of the rediscovery of Ibn Taymiyyah. That is such an important part of the 19th century Sunni revivalist movement where Ibn Taymiyyah moves from being an idiosyncratic, maybe even maverick scholar to being one of the central figures in the Islamic religious tradition for many modern Salafis. Yeah, so in the book's introduction, you talk about how intellectual trends in Ottoman Empire and the North African world should be understood on their own terms before doing the so-called global work, in part to avoid problems that comes from taking European intellectual history terms and ideas and transposing them. Right. Perhaps someone might say that this call for ijtihad is an enlightenment. Yeah. So it just ends up being somewhat problematic. So now that we've talked about these intellectual currents that did exist, can you talk about the implications of your work for those who are, of people who are doing studies on this period or around this period there are so many you know current uh, conferences on global early modernities trying to understand this time period in various regions outside of europe many of them are sort of pointing towards um 
looking beyond traditional markers of progress like print culture or rates of literacy based on a Western model. And um, for example, the second portion of the book in which you're really talking about the popularization of creed, I mean, this is very striking. So how do you, what would you sort of contribute to this more global conversation? I, I am, I'm all for a global conversation. I, um, and um, I have had a chance to discuss my work with people who work on China in this period. I found the works of Benjamin Elman, one, one of whose books is called On Their Own Terms on Science in China to be uh, valuable for me. Um, but I think to, in order to have a proper conversation with others, we need to develop our study of our own region of the world sufficiently to be for the conversation to be on more equal terms, as opposed to European historians thinking up of terms such as modernity or enlightenment or humanism, and then we are expected to sort of find these things in our own fields. I think we can do better than that. Uh, but so I'm, I'm all for a discussion of comparative discussions. I think it's valuable. But the agenda of research has to be set within our field. Mm -hmm. If it's set too early by questions that have been asked outside of our field, we risk getting into the situation, which I've borrowed a term from development theory, the development of underdevelopment. We ask questions that are purely guided by um, historic, historiographical points and theories that have developed, say, in European history, and th then this is what we look for in our field. Now, to be more concrete, and I think we the intellectual history of the Islamic world, particularly, say, the Ottoman Empire in North Africa, in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century is still quite underdeveloped. I think that's something everyone agrees. So a lot of work has to be done, I think, before we are we can participate actively and, in, and on equal terms with people who work on this period, say, in, in, in Europe. This does not mean that we do not have a conversation before that stage. So on the basis of my own work, say, on the value of verification, mm -hmm. uh, I think I would personally question the self-understanding that many uh, European historians have of European history in this period, that with, say, the Enlightenment, we have this rhetoric of daring to use one's own reason, as Kant famously said. Mm -hmm. Well, daring to use one's reason is a rhetorical trope that exists in the Islamic world in the 18th century. Of course, they derive wildly different conclusions than Kant himself did. Once we look at the scholarly traditions of the non-European world and we see that the value of argumentation, the value of critical reflection was well established, at least as a value, the self-understanding of, of many uh, historians of the Enlightenment and of modernity that with the Enlightenment and the modernity we first get the value of critical reflection and what we had before was somehow 
reliance on others becomes Talk exposed. Yes, becomes becomes yeah. lead, right? <laughs> becomes uh, exposed as uh, groundless. Uh, so the self-understanding of modernity as an age of reason and rational reflection which sometimes even is picked up by people who are not happy with modernity and think that with modernity we lose some kind of primordial uh, pre-lapsarian romantic being at one with faith and with nature I mean so but whether we give it a positive spin or a negative spin the idea that European modernity has a as a monopoly of critical reflection and of the the rhetoric of daring to use one's own reason, daring to question authority, mm-hmm. becomes exposed. So that's one way in which the very little step that we are doing now in, in looking at the intellectual history of this period that we can engage in a conversation. The reflections on how to read uh, are things that... Um, that chapter was initially published in a in a volume on world philology, which tries precisely to look at philology not just in a European humanistic context, but also in India, uh, amongst both Muslim scholars and uh, Sanskrit scholars uh, in East Asia, uh, where in the early modern period we have a neo-Confucianism and a, an interest in old Confucian texts. Uh, so. I think discussions and comparisons can be enriching and are very important, but we need to do a lot of work with the primary texts of our tradition before we can be completely equal partners in this conversation. And that's uh, that's something I feel very strongly about, also because some of the secondary literature, valuable as it is, has tended to accept terms like humanism or enlightenment or Cartesianism when talking about Islamic scholars in the 17th and 18th century. And that's something that I think we we have to be a little bit cautious about. And again, I think we can do better than simply importing these concepts. Uh, and I personally, and maybe this is also uh, controversial, but I think even the word modernity is something that is ready for reflection and critical reflection and shouldn't simply not be taken over by Taklid. The idea that if something is 17th, 18th century, then it's somehow modern. Why? And I think it's it's valuable to reflect. And maybe the end of the reflection is to salvage modernity or to understand it better. And maybe it's the end of the, the discussion would be to think of better terms. Thank you so much, Professor Rehab, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed having you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Listeners interested in learning more about this topic can find a bibliography on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where Professor Wayhub has kindly provided a few titles on the topic, and we hope that you'll tune in next time. Bye.